you were here last week, you recognize that from last week. Such incredibly powerful statements about prayer from some of the greatest people that have lived on this earth. And when I saw Abraham Lincoln's quotes, it reminded me we ordered more books, 100 great verses that have made America great. So we have them here and we're going to keep ordering them until we have no one left who wants one. So if you would like one of those books, uh, they're right there in the church office, grab one. All right? So uh, dear Eric Mooney, he said, Pastor, now here's what you need to focus on for this weekend. And I always listen to what Eric Mooney tells me. He said, Pastor, in this third session, you need to focus on this question. In what ways does your knowledge of God's actions and God's character actually affect the way you pray? And how does your understanding of God's sovereignty, His power and authority, affect the way you pray in any situation? How does your knowledge of God affect the way you pray? It was about three months ago I did a funeral for a gentleman. He was not a member of this church. He was a relative of a member. And when I did that funeral, some family member got up and spoke about him. And I'll never forget the words they shared in their eulogy. They said about this individual, there is no word that he ever spoke that he did not fulfill what he promised. There is no promise that he ever gave that he did not fulfill that which he spoke. His words were as good as gold. He never said something that he could not accomplish. So whenever he spoke a word of promise or direction, you knew he was speaking from the hearts. And of any human being I have ever known on this earth, he is the man I could trust because he never failed me in the past. And I knew he would not fail me in the present. And I just got goosebumps all over the place when he spoke in that way concerning that man. Eric Mooney's question, how does your understanding of God's character and power, how does that affect the way you pray? If an individual could stand up at a funeral and give that eulogy about this man, you know, his word was as good as gold and he never overspoke himself and whatever he said he would do, he would actually do. And I've never seen another human being like that. If that could be spoken of a human being, what could be said of God? Does God ever overreach himself? Does he ever promise something that he can't accomplish? He creates the universe out of nothing. Sperm and an egg come together and there you sit. How does your knowledge of this man, God, and his son, Jesus, how does that affect the way you pray? This individual giving the eulogy, he in essence said, whenever I went to this individual and I asked him a question or asked direction or asked him to do something, I knew with absolute certainty that that which I asked for would occur. 
Do you feel the same way when you come to God in prayer? His name was Nehemiah. I've never preached on Nehemiah before. I preached on Joseph, who was similar. I preached on Daniel, who was similar. But I've never preached on Nehemiah. He is the author of the last historical book in the Old Testament. We meet him as an adult. The year is 600 B.C. He is serving in the Persian royal courts. He is a personal cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. This position necessitated the greatest trust imaginable for the cupbearer of the king, as menial as does that title seem to bear. Cupbearer, what's that? That individual was the last person who tasted the food or the wine that the king drank. The king's life was literally in the cupbearer's hands. Because if he was bought off, or if he proved unfaithful, the king would die. There were less than five individuals who were in charge of the king's life. And the last individual was the cupbearer. That's the position that Nehemiah held. You say, how could he hold that position? He was one of the exiles from Judah. He was one of the individuals like Joseph and Daniel who had been ripped away from his family and now he's in the king's courts. And everyone looking at Nehemiah should say, well, he's got to be an enemy of the kingdom because we stole him away from his family and we burned his house and we killed his family. He's got to be an enemy. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because they had done harm to his family. Here is Nehemiah. And they look at him over the course of many years and they see the honor and the fortitude and the worship of his God that comes from this man. And they sit back in awe. And they say, this man who worships this God is unlike any we have ever seen. Let him be in the position of the cupbearer for the king. Does it ring a bell? It should. The man named Joseph, 1,000 years earlier, 1600 B.C., it is Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers, and now he's in Egypt. And over a course of 20 years, he climbs to the second highest position in the kingdom under Pharaoh Necho. Why does he climb to that position? Because they watch him. They watch him at Potiphar's house. They watch him in seven years in prison. They watch him. And they do not see a human being acting on his own character. They see a human being who has been touched supernaturally by the God that he serves. And when they see this light in Joseph, they say he is a man of honor to be trusted because of his worship of his God. And they put him in that position. Daniel, just 120 years earlier, Daniel, in the same land of Babylon, exiled just like Nehemiah. And they watch Daniel. And Daniel climbs to the highest position among the satraps. 64 satraps governing 64 provinces of that kingdom. And who is the top dog? Who is the CEO of all the satraps? It is Daniel. 
And when the king looks at him, King Nebuchadnezzar, he says, your God that you worship. You pray to him every morning, evening. King Darius says to him, I want you in the highest position I can offer because, Daniel, you are the epitome of the God you worship. I said about the LWML, Jesus said, Matthew five sixteen, let your light so shine before men that they may see your kindness, your good works, your passion for your Lord. And they'll rejoice that you're in their life as LWML. That's Joseph. That's Daniel. That's Nehemiah. They let their light so shine before men that the kings and the administrators saw something in them that they saw in no one else. And they appointed them to the positions. How did Joseph know God so well? How did Daniel know God so well? How did Nehemiah know God so well? If you look at Nehemiah chapter 9, it tells you, Nehemiah devoured God's Word. When did the waters of the Red Sea open? 1500 B.C. When does Nehemiah live? 600 B.C. What did he have in his hands? Look at Nehemiah chapter 9. In his hands, he had the story of the Israelites being rescued from slavery. In Nehemiah chapter 9, he talks about the waters of the Red Sea being opened. He talks about God being with the Israelites for 40 years in that wilderness. He recites the history of God's people. And when he recites the history of God's people, what is he doing? He's drinking in God. You and I might read the stories, it doesn't affect us, but when Nehemiah read the stories, when Daniel read the stories, they were filled with such power and hope and encouragement and strength. Nehemiah said in chapter 9, if God can do that for those people back then, he can do it for the people now. The Israelites were in the desert for 40 years. Those from Jerusalem had been exiled for 70 years. The Israelites, 40 years in the wilderness. The Israelites, 400 years in captivity. The Jews at Nehemiah's time exiled for 70 years. And for 70 years, those people had prayed to the God who had opened the waters of the Red Sea. And they prayed back then like you and I pray right now. Lord, I know it's cancer, but you opened the waters of the Red Sea. Lord, I know I might lose my job, but you opened the waters of the Red Sea. Lord, I've got a situation going on right now. I don't know the way out of it. There's no escape, but you opened the waters of the Red Sea. Guess what Nehemiah was saying in 600 B.C.? He says, I have a situation here that seems not to be able to be resolved, but you opened the waters of the Red Sea. And you protected the people for 40 years in the wilderness. You you gave them water to drink and food to eat. You protected them from their enemies. God, I know you. Eric Mooney, pastor, be sure and ask the question, how does your knowledge of God's actions affect the way you pray? Nehemiah knew the character of God and the power of God. If he could do it for them back then, he can do it for us now. 
Nehemiah knew the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace hundred years earlier. He knew the story. If God can do that for them, if God can predict Daniel in the lion's den, then God can answer my prayer. And you'll study the prayer of Nehemiah. We'll not read it now. You'll study it. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 through verse 12. And in the prayer, he is saying, God, I'm coming to you in prayer. I'm coming to you about your people. Remember Pastor Shower last week. He kept emphasizing the fact Uh, God said to Moses, your people, while you're on the mountain, Ten Commandments, they're worshiping a golden idol. I'm going to destroy them. And Moses said, they're your people. Why would you destroy your people, your children? Why would you do that? Nehemiah saying the same thing in his prayer. He said, they're your people, God. You can deliver them if it's your will. For 70 years, the people who prayed, how long have you prayed for something? I talk to parents on their deathbed and they say, you know, I've prayed for 30 years that my son or my daughter would, would come back to their Lord. Or I prayed for 15 years that whatever caused the break in our family would be reconciled. How long have you prayed for something? The Israelites prayed for 70 years that God would let them go back to Jerusalem. And there were three times in the 70 years that God let a segment go back. There came a time when one of the segments was Nehemiah's brother. Nehemiah's brother went back to Jerusalem and immediately when he saw Jerusalem, he sent a letter to Nehemiah. And he said to his brother, he said, there's nothing left. It's kind of like Florida right now. There's nothing left. The temple is utterly destroyed. The walls have been broken down and the smoldering of the fire still lingers. There's nothing left in the place where God is worshipped. And Nehemiah in his prayer said, God, let us go back and restore the place where your people have worshipped you. Four months he waited. He realized that if he went to Artaxerxes, And he said to him, I don't want to be a cupbearer anymore. I want to go back to Jerusalem. That is the task God gives me. He knew if he told Artaxerxes that, and if Artaxerxes was in a bad mood, he would die. He knew that the king would be so dishonored that Nehemiah would die. Four months he waited. Four months he prayed every day. He said, Lord, let me know the time that I'm supposed to go. And finally, after four months, God said to him, on this day you go. On this day you go. And on that day when he stood before the king and he said to the king, my task has been to serve you, the mighty king of Assyria and Babylon. My task has been to serve you. But my God has a greater task. He wants me to go back to Jerusalem. To take what I've learned in your courts. And apply it to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And Artaxerxes on that day said to him. You must serve your God. You have served me. You must serve your God. 
I will send you back to Jerusalem with every help, Nehemiah chapter 9, with every help that I have available to me. And that's what he did. How does your knowledge of God affect the way you pray? You've got these stories, they touch you. But they're not your story. You weren't literally delivered from the waters of the Red Sea. And yet in your life you have been. Amen? No, you're not Baptist, but amen, right? Okay. You weren't there in 1500 B.C. when the waters opened. But in your own life, the waters of the Red Sea have been opened once, twice, three times, ten times. I think I'm closing in on 20 or 25. How does that affect who you pray to? How does that affect you? The year was 1979. There were 52, I believe, Americans who were hostages in Iran. Radical group rounded them up from the embassy. They kept them hostage for 444 days. I'll never forget sitting in front of the television set. It was a day after they had been released and the government had talked with them. Here's what you should say. Here's what you shouldn't say. And they were being interviewed 24, 48 hours later. They put a microphone in front of this man's face. His eyes were hollow. His face was so thin you could tell that he had been through a nightmare. But when they put that microphone in front of his face and they said, how did you survive 444 days not knowing from one day to the next whether you would be alive? And he said, I wasn't alone. He said, my Lord and Savior is with me. And they kept the interview going. And he quoted Psalm 27, verse 13. He said, every single day I prayed, I am confident of this. I will behold the goodness of God in the land of the living. Be strong and wait upon the Lord. You'll behold the goodness of God in the land of the living. And I prayed it every single day for 444 days because I knew the character and the power of the God to whom I prayed. And he said, I didn't know whether the land of the living was going to be heaven because they took my life, or whether the land of the living was going to be back with my family in the States. But I knew the God I prayed to, and I trusted Him. Closing word. The story I told two and a half years ago, the first or second Sunday, we were online because of covid the story of the 12-year-old girl in the airplane. And there's no one with her. She's by herself, 12 years of age. And there's a minister on that airplane, and the airplane goes up. And everything is smooth for about 15 minutes, and then all of a sudden the lights flicker in the airplane, and everyone gasps. And all of a sudden the, the plane plummets 100 150, 200 feet down, straight down, and everyone, they're no longer gasping, they're screaming. 
And the minister is watching as the thunder pounds and the lightning seems to surround the airplane. And he watches everybody. Some are praying, some have their rosaries out, some have their heads in their hands, some are weeping, some are throwing up. There is utter chaos in the plane. And the minister is watching the 12-year-old. He realizes there's no one with her. He's concerned about her. And he watches her and he watches her. And while everyone else is in such great panic, she is sitting there reading a book. And when the lights flicker a second and a third time, she puts the book down and she leans her head back, just totally calm and at peace. And when the lights come back on, she gets her crayons out and she starts drawing pictures. After some 20 minutes, the pilot says, we are past the storm. We will land in two minutes. Prepare for the landing. And there is wild applause and cheering on the plane. Everyone disembarks and when they do, the minister goes up to the little girl and he says to her, I could not help but notice how calm you were when all of that storm was going on. How come you were so calm? And the girl said, because my daddy is the pilot and he promised to take me home. My daddy is the pilot And he promised to take me home. So it was for Joseph and Daniel and Nehemiah. So it is for you. And so it is for me. Our daddy is a pilot. And the one you are praying to. The one you know so well. He has promised to take you home. In our Father's name, Amen. Lord, take the promises and the stories of your power at work in people's lives in the Bible. May we apply them as readily as did Nehemiah. And Heavenly Father, keep us close to you. May there never be a circumstance today or tomorrow in which we do not realize your presence, your peace, and your strength. In our Father's name, amen.